Ach, das ist wonderful. What a privilege to be here and to be able to share. I really do count it a privilege. Thank you guys for trusting me to stand here and to share with you guys as a, and for us as a congregation. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Carl and my wife is Anita and I've got a little girl called Isla. She's just looked at me now because she realizes daddy's on the stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think your Francois and Kayla, while I was watching you guys lead worship, I thought I'm gonna, I'm excited that one day I get to maybe have the same thing. I want to be worshiping with Isla as well. It's wonderful. I don't know if you guys know that. So it's Kayla's Francois' daughter. So it was a family affair this morning. Um, and I didn't know who was leading worship at times. I thought maybe Francois was just step off the stage and Kayla should actually just take over. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. Beautiful. Nice that you had a mic this time. It's good. Good. So yes, I'm very excited to share this morning. Um, I, in preparing for this preach, um, I actually had something else at one point that I was going to speak about, and then it came to one Monday evening. I sat down to prepare, and I just started spending some time reading some scriptures, and I realized um, I had to preach on something completely different, and really felt the Lord lay this word on my heart. And um, so really trusting it's going to build into us, into the the specific time that we're in right now as a congregation here in Somerset West. Um, it's obviously been a hard year and a hard 18 months for many of us, um, but have felt recently like the Lord moving Somerset West in particular into a place of greater repentance. Um, there's been shifts in hearts that's been happening in, in different individuals, and even with new people being added, I think a greater sense that people are... Um, humbling themselves, and just coming into a kind of right relationship, a right standing again with the Lord. And I really do believe, we had a word a while ago about God pouring out His Spirit, that the Lord is going to come, and the Lord is going to pour out His Spirit on us more and more and more, and that we're actually positioned increasingly at this time, where a lot of the rest of the world, I believe, is going into something of a slump, you know, and there's a heaviness that's taking over in some, in some places in the world. And but the church is going to start to actually gain momentum now more and more and more, you know, as God comes and breaks through and sort of takes out more and more his body and his bride um, and his true bride. And those that truly know him will start to shine brighter and brighter and brighter. And the world look at those people and say, what have you guys got? You know, more than ever, that divide is happening. Um, so I really trust that this morning's word is going to be one in which you're going to feel um more encouraged and have a greater idea of what does it mean to be this place, this dwelling place of God, the church, um, who has to hold and allow God to work through us, because that's what he's chosen to do. Um, it's an incredible thing that God, you know, God could establish all his purposes without us, but he chooses to work through us as broken people, broken individuals even connected with one another, not just broken individuals, but broken individuals in community with one another, brings something even more glorious to him as he operates and works through us and establishes his purposes through us. But that does mean we've got to have a clear idea of what does that look like then and what does that mean, you know, that God would presence himself amongst us and operate and work through us. Does that make sense? Did you know that that was the high calling that we have, you know, as the church? Um, some of you, it might be new. I mean, Andrew probably teach on this much better than I would, but the church, we are the called out ones of God, you know. Um, so when you become a believer and you become a Christian, it's not just that you come into a personal relationship with God, but you can become part of a kingdom and a new family, the household of God. 
you know, and the household of God itself is what breaks through into the world, you know, and brings change, not just individuals operating on their own, you know. And this is what we're part of. Um, in John 14, 12, I didn't put the scripture on the, on the board, but reminded of it this morning, Jesus says um, when he gives out his Holy Spirit or allows his, um, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, that believers will do greater things than he did on the earth. And that's always been a scripture that's puzzled me. Um, because if I'm honest, if I look at my own life, I've not done greater things than Jesus. And I'm sure every one of us could look at our own lives and say, no, we haven't. We haven't raised the dead or calmed the wind and the waves. Jesus was God. He came in with a specific um, mandate, and the Holy Spirit was on him in absolute power over every aspect of creation when he was on earth. But if I look at the church since then, you know, together, the corporate church has arguably done greater things. More people coming to know God. Miracles, um, works of power happening. Um, so the church itself, I think, was God's idea to be even a more powerful force than even his own ministry, perhaps, on the earth at that time. Hence the fact that he went away and he gave the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we need to grasp that. I do believe we've got to get that and realize that in this time more than ever. You know, It's important to get that truth and to recognize that you're part of something. So what I want to do is, yeah, let's start with reading Ephesians 2.22, just to ground this. It says, and in him, Paul speaking to the church, and in him you two are being built together to be become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And this is this beautiful picture that I had when I was preparing on this Monday night. I just, I know I've even shared on this before from the stage, so it's crazy. I don't preach very often, but maybe when I preach, I preach about the same thing, which is <laughs> quite something. But anyway. So here we, here we see it. In him we are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And I think for me it's just such a beautiful, beautiful concept that here we sit as the, the corporate house of God and God wants to come and dwell on us and within us. You know, So as we were worshiping the Lord this morning, I, this, this is something of a revelation that I have, that God is here. And as we're praising him and as we're responding to him, he's almost like settling and coming and resting over us. Um, inhabiting this place, you know, and that's an awe-inspiring reality and truth. And that's what God, uh, Paul is saying here, is that this is what God wants to be with his church. But let's go back and see what are the origins of this, because this was always God's plan. And I started to just do a little bit of research going back in the Bible to see where did this come from, this idea, because God doesn't just do things in bubbles. He's got a greater story that he's fulfilling right across church, across history. And so if you look right at the beginning of time, Genesis 2.2, this is after God has created the work, the universe, and everything just by a word. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Do you guys understand this? I don't know how many of you have sometimes been puzzled by this idea that God would rest on the seventh day and what that really means. Um, when you read the story of creation that was probably passed down orally through the, through the centuries up until they could actually start to write and, and record history. This creation story that starts with in the beginning was God, um, or in the beginning God created, is like a song. It's a beautiful poem almost of how God comes and creates in this absolutely orderly fashion. He always establishes, um, he establishes the sun, and he establishes the moon, and he establishes seasons and he establishes animals on land and fish in the sea and there's this beautiful picture of order and cohesion as God creates and then it comes to the fact that he rests 
But God, of course, being transcendent, omnipotent, God doesn't need to rest. God doesn't get tired. He speaks with a word. So what this word means, that he rested from all his work, is that God came and inhabited the earth. And the, the earth was like a sanctuary that he had, he had made and he had created. And he came and dwelt apart in, within the sanctuary. Um, and so God's original plan was that once he had created, he would come and dwell in this place and establish man in this garden and dwell with man in relationship within this garden and work his purposes in relationship with man, you know, which is awe-inspiring that God wanted that personal connection. He didn't just create because he could and then go back into his perfect place of contentment outside of us because he doesn't need us. He's full in himself. You know, he decided he wanted to express all of himself in connection with mankind on the earth and tabernacle with us. And after the fall, of course, man is banished from the garden and the story continues and God continues to be God. And he decides to set his love on people again. And he goes after this guy, Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation um, in the form of the Israelites. And 400 years later, the Israelites come out of captivity, out of Egypt, because God works incredible things with Moses. And then God gives people once again his idea of how he can come and dwell with them and tabernacle with them. And he gives them specific rules as to how to live in the form of the law, graciously explains them every detail of how they can relate to him as a holy God and not die, essentially. And so he tells them to establish a tabernacle. So Exodus 25 verse 8, Irina says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And at this time in history, God comes and he says, Make this tabernacle and I will come and dwell within this absolutely inner sanctum, in this holy of holies, um, above the, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that God had given to the Israelites. And, you know, once a year, you know, they would even just have this contact. We all know the story of how the priests would only be the only ones who would be allowed to go into this um, inner sanctuary. And there was even that threat that if they had not really done all the offerings they needed to do, and if they were not clean, that God could break out against them, and God could just destroy them at any moment. And yet God chose this. He chose to be in their midst and yet be completely holy and separate to teach them something of his holiness and his greatness as he dwelt among them at this point in time. Isn't that an incredible thought? It says it so many times in Scripture that God had to tell Moses, don't bring the people close or let the people be distant from me because I might just break out against them because I'm so holy that if they come too close, something might happen. I don't even know what will happen. My glory could just consume them. Just like that. Okay? Incredible. And yet here we sit with this same God <laughs> inhabiting this place, and obviously because of Jesus. Then a bit later on, the story continues, um, and we find God makes a covenant with David. So somewhere along the line, the Israelites decide, nope, we don't want to necessarily just be your people under you, God. We want you to give us leaders. We want a king. And King David gets made the king, a man that God obviously chooses, he sees that this is a man after his own heart, and God makes David king. And David has this idea at one point in 2 Samuel 7, which I'm not going to read, but it's an amazing, amazing story. David has this idea as the king, who's, he's established, he's done well, God has blessed him. And as a man who loves God, he decides, I'm going to build God a temple, because why should I live in this beautiful house of cedar, and God lives in a tent, in a tabernacle? 
why not build him an incredible, magnificent temple? And the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, go for it. Do as you said, as, you, as your heart desires. This seems like a good plan. And then in the night, God comes and talks to Nathan and says to Nathan, why on earth you know, would you guys, as mere men, I called you out, David, as a shepherd from the, she- from the sheep pens or whatever, and I made you into a king, and yet you would now decide that you want to make me a temple. You know? It's an amazing, amazing uh, little aspect of scripture. And David's, I don't think David's um, motives were bad. Mo- David wanted to honor God with this, but maybe David had actually gotten a little bit settled and secure in his place as king. And this was just a bit of a reminder. God saying to him, you don't have to build me a temple. I've got a plan. I've got a purpose of how I want to be and dwell with my people, how I want to establish myself with my people. And your idea of a temple, like, thank you, but I don't really need it, is kind of what he says. Because I am God of the universe. I've chosen to dwell in a tent among you. I've chosen this this way for now. And then he says to him, actually, David, I am going to establish your house. And he covenants with David. The God of the universe says to David, I will actually establish your house. You don't have to build me a house. And your descendants are going to go on forever. And that gets fulfilled in Jesus. And he was gracious enough to allow Solomon, actually David's son, to build him this incredible temple still. Um, And he established Solomon. But he actually said, my plan is bigger. My plan is bigger than that. Um, And I think it's a subtle reminder for us as well when it comes to also how we build and how we build church. You know, to stay so in tune with how God wants to build and how he wants to dwell with us and how he wants to presence himself with us. And not to think that we can necessarily, in our own wisdom, add to and say, well, let's, maybe let's do this, this particular thing better or this would work better or whatever. I mean, we have got great ideas and we have to. We have to do things. We have to execute. So I'm not, I, I think we get this right in many ways in our congregation. But I think it's a bit of a warning to the church because there are churches out there that I think create beautiful edifices on the outside or the show is incredibly impressive or something almost like walking into a magnificent temple but is god really there you know have they have they or have they veered a little bit away and kind of lost him you know so god wants to be seen as god and honored as god and allowed to do things in his way and we stay in tune with him and then of course there's this moment in history where everything changes and Jesus comes to earth. And no longer is the law and the need for sacrifices um, part of Israel's history. And God says, no, I'm doing a new thing now. And Jesus, my son, is coming to fulfill the law and coming to die and coming to reconcile men to himself. John 1 verse 14 uses specific language. John even says, speaking, I'm sure, to a Greek and a, a Jewish audience, and the word, um, the first cause, became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you look in your Bible, if you've got a con- uh, notes at the bottom of your Bible, you might see that they will say that that word dwelt once again says, the look, Jesus came, became flesh, and pitched his tent amongst us. Just like the tabernacle, he pitched his tent among men. So instead of this tabernacle that the Jews would, would relate to God in, or the temple, suddenly we have God's own son coming and tabernacling amongst us. And having this incredible relationship with the Father, demonstrating this relationship with the Father, um, I in him and he, he in me, and by the Holy Spirit, doing incredible works of power on earth. You know, 
and showing us, basically giving us a model. This is how I want my church to be. This is how I want you, this is what my kingdom looks like. And you're going to now have to go and run ahead. Once I go to be with my father, you've got to take on, the, continue the journey and establish my kingdom on this earth and make disciples. And so, once Jesus has gone and he has given us the Holy Spirit, we get, finally, we come into the age in which we live, which is the church age. 1 Corinthians 3.16 speaks of the church, again, as God's dwelling place. Now, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Could we maybe read to 17? Sorry, can you include 17? Sorry, Irena, maybe. So do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And, and if I could quote it, I would, but I literally don't know it, unfortunately. I could paraphrase, but I don't want to. There you go. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Isn't that a solemn little second verse onto that that first one? Um, So such a stern warning that, you know, if we are God's dwelling place, if we are God's temple, how carefully we have to position ourselves and not actually bring any kind of um, division or destruction to this temple, this, this house of God, you know. Okay. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 19 God also, not only is he tabernacling amongst us and presencing himself amongst us, but also actually in the individual. Um, yeah, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within, him, within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? So glorify God with your body. Um, so also an incredible thing that actually even now, we have the Holy Spirit even in us as individuals, tabernacling with inside of us, you know. And doesn't this also add to something of how, um, of the seriousness with which we obviously conduct ourselves in our flesh, basically, and how we live and how we treat ourselves and how we treat one another again, because the Spirit of God dwells within us. Right. So basically what I, I wanted to just illustrate with this is that this has been God's plan right from the beginning, you know, is that God has longed to dwell with us as a people. Does that make sense? Right through the ages, in different ways, he's come and he's dwelt amongst his people. And now we're in this incredible church age where there's so much freedom because of what Jesus has done. We can be reconciled to God and finally the curtain is destroyed. There's no more need for, you know, for sacrifices or for all those things that they used to have to do to kind of make themselves um, pure, to come before God. But because of that, I think, I think sometimes in the, in the Western church we have to almost come back to the revelation of how profound this is and how awesome this actually is. Because otherwise we can become kind of insipid and we can start to take it for granted um, and, and lose the, the majesty of this concept that it is that the holy God is with us and dwells amongst us. Um, I, I remembered when I first started dating Anita long ago, um, I, was, I lived in a very, very boring little flat in Royal Ascot in Milneton. Um, we'd been married 14 years, so it was before then. And my, my flat was very functional. I mean, I'm actually quite a creative guy, and I would write poetry and whatever else, but probably in my head, I didn't actually express it onto the walls of my home or into the space. <laughs> so the space was boring. 
Um, but when I would go to her flat and visit, she lived in Fredhook at the time, I would go in there and always it would be like this wonderful um, being hit by this beautiful expression of everything that she was. You know, there were like LPs and a record player and music from the 70s and um, lots of little cute things on, on shelves um, that were just specifically placed, um, which I since learned was, you know, I don't know if you guys know the expression kawaii which is Japanese cute culture. So that kind of came shining through in her apartment. And everything was ordered and neat as well. Um, so it spoke to a little bit of her perfectionism. And I even remember sometimes kind of moving a carpet and she would sort of walk down to it and sort of put the carpet back in place. Um, and I was so impressed by that because it also thought women after my own heart, I also love order, even though my space is boring. Um, but it, it spoke to who she was, the art, the music, the, 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 the way she decorated the place, the way it smelled, the way it felt, everything was a sign of who she was. And it's the same way with God. His home needs to also then reflect and shine in every single way, all the aspects of his character. And this is something we can, I, I believe, also get slowly but surely at times lose and need to kind of come back into a revelation of who is this God we serve? And if we truly know him, then we can obviously reflect him. Um, so first thing, I'm going to go into three short areas um, that I really believe right now we as the church need to keep in mind in order to be this dwelling place of God. Um, we have to know God. This was something, uh, my brother actually touched on this last week, and this also I just thought, wow, I'm going to add this in because this is profound. He spoke on knowing God. Um, and I remember also in my early years, especially what got me, absolutely passionate and what made me truly fall in love with the Lord, what made me um, really start to give up, give my life for him. I'd been raised a Christian in many ways, but I hadn't had a personal, personal revelation, obviously, till my early adult years. Um, but at that time, I remember reading books. I read J.R. Packer's Knowing God. I think I've still, I've read it probably about five times since then. I read Desiring God by John Piper. I, I, one, my first Christmas with Anita, actually, she boxed... Um, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and she put it above, uh, she put it underneath a whole lot of cups. She gave me mugs, and I opened my Christmas present thinking I'm going to get Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. I was excited, and here I see a couple of mugs. It was a bit of a joke that she played, <laughs> and I just, I just, I actually said, "Oh, this is amazing! Thank you! Wow!" And I did my whole thing that is like my fake happy voice kind of came on, and then I saw actually underneath. Way under there was Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. I was genuinely happy because I was actually like, oh my gosh, our first Christmas, you didn't even like get me my Christmas present. I spelled it out to you. Anyway, but A.W. Tozer says, and but anyway, so this is what shaped me. When I go to books like that, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, I get to see who is this God I serve. You know, what are his character? What is his attributes? What makes him different to me? And we as people, we look to God, I believe, through such broken lenses, you know. Because of the fall, none of us have the ability. I, I think even sometimes without the revelation of the Holy Spirit, without stuff like this, these incredible resources and teachers, we can't know God fully. You know, and in some ways, yeah, God allows himself to be known. In some way, he's never going to be fully knowable because he's eternal. But these are things that I could come into to grips with, you know, as, an, as a young believer. And that keep me and that ground me. Um. A.W. Tozer says, what comes, to, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Okay? So really hear this. If I say to you, and I ask you, 
And I say to you, God, Skulk, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? You know? Or whoever, Peter, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say God? Okay, awesome. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure, Peter, that that's a revelation that probably keeps you and has grounded you and brings you back and helps you through suffering, helps you through hard times, is the knowledge that God is Father, you know? Um, but if your revelation of God, or if perhaps the first thing that comes to your mind is indifferent, far away, cruel, um, whatever, you know, what does that mean in terms of where you will go in your life or your calling? Okay? And I believe you really will. We will miss your, your calling will only be fulfilled to the extent that you actually have got a revelation of God that can support it. Okay? So it's so important to know Him. <clears throat> One of the first things that I think I learned from these books that grounds me is that God is transcendent. You know, this is an incredibly a big word, but basically all it means is God is eternal, God is higher. God is outside of time. Um, he is. Um, he has no beginning. He has no end. He is above and beyond us as people. You know, so God is not us. God is God. Um, two Chronicles two verse four to six. I reference this scripture because it's just in the context of what I shared earlier about David. This is Solomon. So Solomon's about to build this temple, and he says, "Behold, I'm about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God and dedicate it to Him for the burning of incense." of sweet spices before him and for the regular arrangement of the showbread and for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths and the new moons and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God as ordained forever for Israel. The house that I'm to build will be great for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? Isn't that amazing? So Solomon got it. <clears throat> Even though Solomon, blessed with all wisdom and blessed with such wealth and such power at that time in Israel's history, could have built this temple in some ways as self-glorification. He had a revelation that he was actually just a servant and could only make sacrifices before the Lord who was higher than the highest heaven and that this house that he was building could not contain the Lord God. You know? And that's an amazing revelation of God. And it's stabilizing to know that our God is one who exists in perfect contentment with the Holy Spirit and the Son. You know, He never needed us. He didn't have to create, but because His nature is to create, and to express, and to love, He's gone and done what He's done, and created, and spoken out into being, and brought us into this world you know, as people and individuals, and chosen to have a relationship with us, even though he's, He absolutely doesn't need it, and He'd be perfectly content without us. That's an amazing truth. And it is stabilizing, because who wants a kind of Greek God idea? And they're forever getting angry with people and throwing their toys out the cot and killing everybody because they're mad or had a bad day. You know, we have an eternal God who's unchanging in his nature and in all his ways. And that is stabilizing. And I encourage us as a people, don't let yourself have an impoverished view of God. Don't allow your view of God to slowly but surely diminish. And even as you continue doing the right things, you're forgetting who he is in his nature. You know, Come back to those beautiful truths. Open up books like J.R. Packer's Knowing God and come back to knowing God. You know, um, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we, with, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So in an age of information and in which we can learn a lot, 
if we actually just as a people were to behold God more, be in his presence, behold him, see him, learn about him, know him, you know, that is what brings transformation of character. Um, I actually remember it from one of the, it was actually my first Joshlin camp. I think that was the one. Yeah, the Holy Spirit touched me in an amazing way. I was kind of like out on the floor for something like three hours. God was just working and doing something in my life. I was in tears. Um, we were at a place called Rock in Rocklands. Um, maybe Alan remembers we'd go to Rocklands as a church in those days. Um, and it was almost like the entire uh, weekend. There was nothing about how to be necessarily as a person, not even what I'm sharing about how to be as a church, how to be as an individual. It was all just focused on who is God? Who is God amongst us? Who, who is he? What does he look like? How does he love? How does he think? What's, in his, what's on his mind? What defines him? What characterizes him? And because the focus was all him, it was as though God just kind of came and just broke through, you know? And that's what brings transformation. Not even being told how to live or how to do things, you know? Incredible. As much as we need it, the transformation comes through knowing him. Um, okay. I am keeping it on time. Let's see, keep my phone open. All right. Ooh. Okay. Next one. one t- I'm going to go to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 to 15. Paul say, uh, uh, yeah, Paul's saying this to Timothy. So this is the second thing that I want to say, uh, speak on quickly. In this day and age as well, I feel we're coming into a time where the church, to be a dwelling place of God, we cannot be compromised in any way. We have to live according to his word. Listen to this, what he says about the church. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Okay, so guys, we live in a world of shifting morality all the time, okay, and there is no, there is no absolute morality in, on the earth anymore. Postmodernism that came into, into being in about the 60s, 70s, 80s destroyed all of that, the idea of an absolute reality, you know, and it's an unlivable idea if you kind of subscribe to the idea that actually it's only you know, every reality is essentially equal to everything else because we, we can't, we can only know what's going on in our own minds. And so if you, if you think like that, it's actually unlivable. Okay? If you jump off a building, you will fall and you will die. And we will all die if we jump off buildings. So that's an absolute reality. It's an absolute truth. And God as a, is a moral, as a, is an absolute moral principle. Okay. He's above everything and in him is right and wrong. He defines the boundaries. When God created the Garden of Eden, He defined the boundaries of the Garden. He said, Adam, this is how you've got to live. Don't eat of that tree and everything else you can enjoy. He defined it. And He said, live in relationship with me, trust me, and trust my boundaries. You know? And we're coming into a time where it's going to be challenged. I think I don't want to even go into it too much, but we know even in our community, there's things that happen in school suddenly. Or, and there's a a sense of, oh my word, I'm a believer, so just the basics of what I believe, if I'm just living within the boundaries, I'm actually starting to offend somebody else. And somebody else is going to be angry with me because I just live within the boundaries. Um, I remember it even being, being, as a psychologist, just saying to one of my colleagues at one point that I'm married. He said, oh, he said, why are you married? Are you a Christian? Amazing. Just talking about being married made him think, whoa, why are you married? Or, you know, how did, why did you make that choice? Are you a Christian? Okay. 
So one day it might be that marriage really comes back to being, it's only Christians, really, that are getting married, or that are staying faithful in marriage, because it's God's idea, you know? And we have to hold to those boundaries. So that's my challenge to us. Let's absolutely, if you're slipping in areas, if you're starting to believe that, okay, you know what, maybe certain things could actually be acceptable, or people can can love in different ways, and so certain things might not actually be impure or, or abominable in God's sight, you know, because God is loving and surely life moves on and the world changes. Man, get your thinking right, you know. Get your thinking, bring it back. Come back within the boundaries that he's established. When people walk in and they see that and they see this is an uncompromising people, I believe God honors that and God is there and people will actually be attracted to that because outside, that shifting morality isn't very easy to live in either, actually. People desire absolutes. They need it. We need boundaries to live well. Okay, and finally, um, identity and dependence. We need to be a people whose identities are solidly rooted in God and our dependency is solidly rooted in Him. Okay, and these are two things that fly in the face of what the world presents. You know, in the especially 21st century world, we know it. There's tremendous pressure. I work with a lot of teens and there's major pressure in there to basically establish your identity in terms of what the world loves. So once, on one, on one sense, the world says, like, um, I think I mentioned this before, I noticed it in The Sound of Music, um, when, because I love that movie actually, but, and I do watch other movies, I don't only sit and watch The Sound of Music, I'm not so sort of, <laughs> don't worry, <laughs> I do watch Netflix and whatever else, but anyway, The Sound of Music has this moment where the, the Mother Superior sings over Maria, because she's about to leave the, um, the, the abbots or whatever, or the, the nunnery, whatever you want to call it. And she's about to leave, and she's about to go and marry Captain Von Trapp. And she sings, climb every mountain, forge every stream, follow every rainbow until you find your dream. Isn't that very worldly, actually, <laughs> in a way? <laughs> and actually a little bit unrealistic. Just follow, just go to the end of the rainbow, you know, and you'll find your dream at the end of the rainbow. And young people get told this from the beginning. They say, work hard, look inside yourself, Find out who you want to be and just go and be that thing. You know, if you want to be an actor, go and be an actor. Go to Hollywood, you know, and your dreams will die on the boulevard of broken dreams, as they say. Go and, go and, go and be a, you know, go and whatever. If you want to be an astronaut, go and work for NASA as a South African. Go for it. Whoa. Okay. I hear these things with, 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 and, and it's crashing because it's actually a lie. And at the same time, the world is saying, but actually, there's no out for you. You have to be successful. You have to be beautiful. You have to be wealthy. You have to be, you have to be good. You have to be seen by everyone as popular. You know? But that's what they say. So on the one hand, they're saying, be whoever you want to be. But don't be a loser. Don't be seen as pathetic. Don't fail. You know? And that's not what it's like with God. The Lord says to us, God came. He spoke everything into being just with a word. But when it came to man, he came and breathed life into Adam. He, he formed him from the dust of the ground. And he put his image onto Adam. And he puts his image onto every one of us. You know, So our, we are image bearers of Christ. We know this. Image bearers of God. You know, And the world out there really doesn't get that. As much as they might say we, we prioritize people, every person, the humanistic idea says every person is valuable, every person is, has worth. That's not what we see lived out, actually. People are very quickly judged. People are very quickly discarded or dismissed, you know, or abused. And abuses are tolerated, okay, as much as that might be said. But we as Christians have to live to a different thing. 
This is our identity. We are image bearers of God. And yet at the same time, the Bible also says we're sheep. We're just sheep. So there's this incredible paradox. You're an image bearer of God. God came and he breathed life into you in the dust in the ground. But at the same time, you're just a sheep. I remember stopping on the side of the road with Anita once, also going on holiday, and I saw this big flock of sheep, about 500. She said, you've got to go quietly to the sheep. I just walked up. I thought, I'm going to see the sheep. Hey, I kind of called out to them. All 500 sheep or something or whatever it was, maybe a 1,000 sheep, just got up and ran immediately. They just scattered the entire flock. Um, and it just felt like I'm a poor farmer. I've gone and chased his entire flock away from when they were feeding. But that's what sheep are. Sheep are dumb. Sheep are naive. Sheep fall over and they can't get up again. Sheep eat the wrong food and get sick half the time. If you don't feed them the right things, they'll just eat anything, as far as I know. Um, and that's what Jesus says we are, like sheep without a shepherd. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray, each turned to his own way. But God has laid upon him the pity of us all. Us all. You know? And that's the beauty of Christianity, is that you can come to God and you might be successful, and you could be a totally failed father, a failed husband, a failed son, failed daughter, but you can still find um, love and acceptance and worth in him, you know, which is not something the, the, the world offers. And that's what we need to be as a place for others, that people come in and they see, this is what they, they see, image bearers of God, but who are also completely grounded in the fact that we are nothing in the end, actually. We're all nobodies, you know, but we love. And so dependency. I just put up um, Isaiah 42 verse 1. As sheep, we've got to be dependent. Man, I think we've got to increase our dependency on God. The world is pulling us more and more and more in this day and age towards self-reliance eh? and independence, that we've got to be a dependent people. This, one's, this verse says this about Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my, sp- my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And this is the part that um, I want to draw reference to. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in in whom my soul delights. So Jesus came to earth, and we see this in the gospel. If you read your gospels, Jesus lived in dependence on his Father. And yet he was the God of the universe, completely divine, knowing all in the Father, having the Father in him, you know. But he lived his life on earth as a man in absolute dependence to his father, to his dad. It's like Jesus didn't take a step without knowing, what is my father doing? Is my father okay with this? Is the Holy Spirit with me in this? Um, is this what my father wants? You know, He lived dependently, and he's the God of the universe. You know, um, Luke chapter, what's the next scripture, Irina? Sorry, after that one, I forget. Luke 5, verse 15 to 16, look at this. But now, even more. The report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. You know, So the God of the universe would go and would not just operate, but he would withdraw and he would spend time with his father, dependently praying. Okay, And the disciples knew Jesus prayed because they asked him, teach us God how to teach us Lord how to pray. You know, they knew that Jesus was a man of prayer. And they obviously saw, you've, you've got such an incredible dependence on God. We want to also know how to have that dependence on God. you know. And so I feel like for us as well, let's be a people. If we're going to be a real house of God that shines forth, please, let's increase our dependence on God. Let's increase the times we spend as individuals with the Lord. Let's increase our times of prayer. 
because Jesus would withdraw to pray. And he was Jesus. You know, we're people. We're just mere men <clears throat> with all our bents and our sins and our stuff that we're always struggling with. How much more do we not need to come before him and pray and spend time in his presence, you know, and draw from him strength? Yeah. And the devil's a deceiver, you know. I think I just was also reminded he wants to counterfeit everything um, and would want this place to look like to, to look like it has something of God, but there's somehow no power or no life. That would be a, probably the, the Satan's end game, would be something like that. And I believe we're on the right track. I don't believe we're at risk on any level. I think this church is powering forward in amazing ways, you know. But I think constantly these are, these are maybe things to kind of come back to. And, and I did feel for us, for some of us perhaps, these are areas where we might need to actually grow in again and be reminded. Um, it's beautiful. When I, when I start to increase my time of prayer and worship with God and personal time of worship or just being in his presence, just talking to him, just, oh, Lord, I've had a hard day. Here's where I am. I open myself up to you. Please speak. Here I am. I'm not going to just talk. I'm going to sit and listen. I'm going to quiet myself and I'm going to start to communicate with you. You know, I find it lifts me so much. And so many of us, I believe, might be quite flat in, in, in areas and, and struggling and kind of just going through the motions, doing, um, doing the basics, but not necessarily all, all the life that we can have. And I believe he wants us to have that life. And it comes through some of these things that I think I've shared about today. <clears throat>